How about there? Sweet. I love being away from light pollution and looking up and seeing the, the, the Big Dipper in the northern horizon, the southern cross all the way to the south, and just seeing stars lit up. Sadly, while Timothy and I were enjoying the beauty of the stars, we were missing the peak of fall here in West Virginia. After many years of missing fall, I do feel that one. It's always hard because I love the beauty of the leaves and the colors, the vibrant colors on display. We did catch a little bit as we came back, but I definitely missed it. We love seeing the beauty and glory of God on display. And it's God's delight to give us little glimpses of his splendor in the creation around us. He loves to display his glory, and he loves it when his children recognize it and respond to it. I'm a big fan of the Louis Giglio Indescribable series. I love seeing the Hubble uh, Space Telescope and as he ventures out into space, and it's like, you guys got to see this. Look at how awesome this is. And I love it when, when Louis says something like, it's like God's up there saying, hey, Guys, I've got more stuff to show you. Would you just build a bigger telescope? I want to show you this. This is awesome. This is going to blow your mind. It's, and I'm like, yes, I want to see it. Because God has displayed so much splendor in the creation that is around us. But can you guess where God most fully displays his splendor and his beauty? It's not in leaves or or in the stars. He displays it at its peak in his son, Jesus Christ. And that's been the message of Colossians. It's the incomparable Christ. Do you want to see the splendor of God? Look to Christ. Have you beheld his glory as we've journeyed through Colossians? I wonder if that's Part of why we love to display things. It's rare to go into a home or into an office where something's not being displayed. We like to display things that that remind us of people that we love or events, or often you see accolades on display. But can you guess what the number one thing is that gets displayed typically in homes around the world? And I've not done the Googles on this. This is just through my own personal experience, whether it's in Europe or India or Africa. You walk into a home, the most commonly displayed picture is of the wedding day, of whatever couple is there in that home. We love to look back on that day when smiles were big and bodies were thin Happy memories. We typically do not display sad memories. You will not go into Peter's office and find pictures of his children crying. They are happy pictures. They're beautiful. And they stir the heart to love and remember those that we love and delight in. We typically do not display broken things. We throw those things away. But God is not like us. Incredibly, he chooses to display the glory 
and the splendor and the beauty and the majesty of his son Jesus most fully through the lives of broken and sinful men and women and children who are being gloriously transformed by the Spirit of Christ into his glorious image. That's what Colossians 3 has been about. After beholding the incomparable Christ in chapters 1 and 2, we come into now this life, these lives that are messy and that battle the reality of sin. Life that has died with Christ and is now hidden with Christ. And so we put to death and we put on as God's chosen ones, knowing that God displays the beauty of his son through the rooting out of our old nature and renewing us into his glorious image. And the result, we sing, we give thanks in all circumstances because we know that in the midst of our most painful experiences, even the evil that has been done to us, that we serve a good and sovereign God who is with us. We can give thanks because he always offers us something better than our circumstance, better than whatever it is that our eyes think they see or our hearts have walked in. He offers us the gift of himself and the hope that lies before us in that reality. And the God who transforms the broken and displays the beautiful through it. We'll see today that it's God's great delight to display his beauty and the splendor of Jesus and his bride, the church, through the imperfect picture of marriage. And this can be a hard topic to preach and a hard one to listen to because it immediately starts to bring out responses like, well, you know, I've, I've already heard a lot of sermons on, on marriage, so, you know, you know, heard it before, love and submit, let's move on. Others are like, yes, bring it, I want this, we want more. Others are like, man, I really hope my spouse is listening, right? Um, some are like, look, I'm not married, so I guess I can just check out. Uh, but this is for the whole body. This is for all of us to be envisioned because Ultimately, earthly marriage is about something greater, and we're all a part of that greater, all of us. So regardless of where you find yourself, may the Lord refresh you through his word this morning as we look at how marriage is a display of Christ's glory for all the universe to see. Your marriage, right now, is a display of the incomparable Christ. And as we live this out, we're making known the treasure of Christ to one another and to a broken and unbelieving world. And so let's pray as we come into God's word. Lord, thank you for the hope that is before us and that you are the redeemer of the broken and that you set captives free. And Lord, you set your people free from sin and death and Satan. As we read today, you will present the church to yourself beautiful without spot or wrinkle and thank you for the greater marriage that you've called us all into and Lord we pray that as we come into your word you would stir our hearts afresh for what you call your people to as we pursue you together as we image you together um, to one another and to the world in which we live 
in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we come into our text this morning, I want to just note three quick things together. First, uh, this is a passage that is dealing mainly, oh, three things to note. By the way, I'm really trying hard on PowerPoint, okay? So bear with me. This is new. Um, three things to note. The first, that this is a section that is dealing with a typical Roman household, all right? And so as we flow forward through chapter three, um, this doesn't just come out of nowhere. He's looking at how is this gospel lived out in, in the context of our lives. And so a typical Roman household, you're going to have these kind of these pairings, husbands and wives, that's one, children and fathers, that's another, slaves and masters, that's another. In Uganda, we often, if if this were being written, I would say in a Ugandan context, you might hear uh, husbands and wives, fathers and children, but also uh, uh, fathers, mothers, and house girls, because it's very normal to have a younger girl that is living in a home and helping with the tasks, because the tasks in the home are far too many for one person to manage. You'd also have workers very normal to have workers living in a home or, or connected into a home, maybe not in the immediate house, but in a separate quarters, and they're helping on the farm and taking care of the cows or the chickens. Here, Paul is not including every possible household relationship. He's not talking about grandparents who are living within the home or, um, or house girls, but he, he is saying that the central reality of the incomparable Christ must be the shaper of all human relationships for Christ's people, most notably in the home. So that's how he walks through this passage. And next week, Peter will continue to build on this as we move into children and into slaves and masters in the weeks to come. Second, this is not an isolated text. A lot of times when we talk about marriage, we take it topical and we just, you know, take every passage that talks about marriage. So we would take Colossians 3, we would take Ephesians 5, we would go from 1 Peter and others and say, okay, this is what marriage is about. And that's a helpful thing. And I would love to do that if time were to allow and five hours were our framework. But the truth is, is that marriage is much more than these texts. To actually flesh out the fullness, we would need to go all the way through the Old Testament, all the way, through all the Gospels, through all the epistles, right into uh, all of God's Word. Because really, God's Word is the full package for a successful marriage. But He does want the church to be equipped to live and reflect the reality of Christ and the truth of the Gospel in all areas of life. And that's why. He flows into this text. Third. Yes. The incomparable Christ is revealed in men, women, and children who... I'm going to give you four things because this is important. First, the incomparable Christ is revealed in men, women, and children who are filled from the fullness of Christ. And that's in chapter 2, verse 10, which says simply, you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. You have been filled in him. And 
Second, who are being renewed in knowledge after the image of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 10. Having put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Third, the incomparable Christ is revealed in men, women, and children who are putting to death and putting on as God's chosen ones, as we've already mentioned out of chapter 3. And then fourth, those who are allowing the word of Christ to dwell in them richly, teaching and admonishing one another. Of course, we could go into all of the one another passages, which I love that the the women's conference really highlighted that reality. And that's how Christ is revealed as our treasure in these realities. And I draw that out because the implication for these truths is important, especially for the non-marrieds present among us or the soon-to-be-married, in the case of quite a few couples here. And so it's crucial and it's worth highlighting. So let me just say coming out of this, out of those truths, that being married does not add something to you that you're missing. It does not. Your fullness is Christ. Second, you're not half a person without a spouse. You bear the image of Christ and you are whole in Him. Third, the calling to make disciples, whether it's physical or spiritual, comes to bear on all people as we live in light of this gospel reality and as we take part in filling the earth with sons and daughters of God who confess Jesus as Lord. We want to highlight that because some have taught or spoken against this greater reality. And it's something that we need to to understand because it's easy to make marriage into an idol as if it gives you something that you're missing, as if it will fulfill something that you are lacking. And if you bring that into marriage, you're already setting yourself up for a, a, a very, either a failure or a very hard struggle in marriage. Because your fullness is Christ, and out of that fullness you flow into relationship to your spouse, and back and forth. And so that is foundational. And just as you can waste your marriage, you can waste your singleness, or your non-marriage, if it's just lived for your pleasure or to try to find your fullness in something outside of Christ. And so here we stand with Paul addressing a culture that practices marriage, but with aspects of practice that actually undermine the lordship of Christ. And this passage is about Jesus being lord over your marriage even as he displays his glory through it. So let's read these short verses together. Colossians 3, 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Two main points, two verses Not hard, and yet so much that we could talk about that isn't going to be addressed here. It would be very easy to walk away from a sermon on two verses and say, wow, I wish we would have covered this, or why not that, or how about this? And I just want to say that I I recognize that, that there's a limitation to the things that we will discuss as it relates to uh, these two verses. Our hope and desire 
is that we would talk amongst each other and spur each other uh, as, as we come out of this, this passage. But then also next year, hopefully during training hour, we'll be able to dig into some of these topics in a much deeper way. So the first way that God displays his beauty and glory in Christian marriage is through a wife who submits to Christ. Did you catch that? Perhaps you thought I was going to say to her husband, because that's what the passage says. And that's true. But first, the reflection or display is only possible where it is first lived in relationship to the reality, toward Christ the head, the greater bridegroom of his people. Just as a wedding photo is only beautiful if it portrays the real thing, can you imagine having fake wedding photos in your home? You never actually were married, but you're displaying what looks like a marriage. Everybody comes in, you act like you're married, you're displaying it, you're acting it, but it's not based on what is real. In the same sense, a, a, a facaded submission, an appearance of submission is simply uh, that. It's a facade if it isn't first in relationship to the reality. It is most beautiful when it portrays the genuine of a heart first and ultimately submitted to Christ. Submission to Jesus is what provides the fuel and the sustaining grace for authentic submission in marriage. And so the earthly display is a display of the greater reality. If you struggle to submit to Jesus as Lord, then you will struggle to submit to your husband or the elders who keep watch over your soul or to your friends or to your family to live out the one another's in Scripture. Submission is never just for the sake of submission. It is always for the sake of Christ. Just let that wash over you. Submission is never for the sake of submission. It is always for the sake of Christ. And so what is submission in the context of marriage? Here's a helpful definition. Submission is the calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to help carry it through according to her gifts. So it's a calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership, to help carry it through according to her gifts. And I like this definition because it captures the essence of the word in the relationship of marriage. I think that's John Piper's definition. Submission is a posture of coming under, of honoring, of affirming the leadership, the headship of your husband. And this isn't just something that Paul introduces here. He's not bringing a concept out of nowhere. This is rooted all the way back in creation where God makes man in his image. And part of Adam's creation was headship over the creation. That's why Eve's sin is considered sin in Adam, as you guys talked about a little bit today. He bears the responsibility as the head, as the leader Eve's design as one made equally in God's image and as one together called to exercise dominion over the creation 
she was called an Ezer. An Ezer, a helper, if you read the English text. And I love the word helper because it is not someone who comes and gets a broom and starts to sweep or does the laundry. It is the helper that is imaged and picturing God who is our helper. It is a life-giving help. And that's an important distinction. Life-saving. Because Adam would desperately need saving. But Eve could not be the Savior. She would image God the Savior and God the Helper and come alongside even as Adam is imaging God and Christ the head over his body. This deepens the husband's treasuring of his wife and knowledge that he's loved and respected as a man as he watches his wife Ezering, and I like to use that word to, to capture the meaning. And it is a gift. Submission is a gift that is offered to a husband just as it's offered to Christ. If a husband is demanding submission, he has moved away from what Scripture calls him to do. It's not a husband's demand to make, it's Christ's demand. He is Lord. It is hers to offer first to Christ because he is Lord and then to her husband. So in obedience to Christ and in the upholding of God's design and the creation of this unity and intimacy in marriage that he's made as a husband and wife come together in her submission, she is glorifying Christ, the one that she is submitted to. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. When the scripture says, and when Paul writes, as is fitting in the Lord, it doesn't just mean when it's in line with what Jesus says, though surely it must be. If it's outside of Christ's command, then that is not in line with true biblical submission because it's ultimately and first primarily to Christ. But as one who is walking in submission to Jesus, it is fitting for a wife to display that greater submission through submitting to her husband. Therefore, because submission is always for the sake of Christ, demonstrating that he is Lord, I want us to just look at a few brief descriptions of what submission is and what submission is not. Christ-honoring submission recognizes that Jesus' headship is being imaged in a husband's headship, but is not replaced by it. Jesus' headship is being imaged in a husband's headship, but not replaced by it. This makes submission to a husband courageous and an act of faith, because Jesus perfectly works and leads through imperfect people. Hallelujah. Especially us imperfect husbands. A husband images Jesus' headship and leads in a way that makes it clear that Jesus is the head of the home while he stands as a household head submitted to the authority of Christ. A husband isn't Jesus, but he reflects Jesus. 
Christ-honoring submission chooses to submit as one equal in worth and value and as a co-heir, not as one less valuable or as a doormat in the home. This means that even if you're smarter, more highly educated, more gifted in leadership, or none of these, you reject the lie that simply says, well, I just have to submit. I'll just do whatever he says. Um, Or, on the flip side, because I am more gifted in, then I must do these things because somebody's got to do it. Submission is not giving up your rights as an image-bearing person. Your value is not secondary. Submission does not imply that. In Uganda, we have to come against the lie that, that women can believe that says simply, my value is a cow because cows are a bread price. They're given uh, for the, at the wedding uh, for a husband to marry his bride. He's paying cows for her. One Ugandan friend of ours was deeply wounded when her uncle said to her, your value is a cow. Like, no, no, you're an image-bearing daughter of Christ. You're worth much more. Women, you are a treasure of God your Father. And you're worth being cared for, and protected, and cherished, and loved. All the things that God calls a husband to do. As we read the bigger passage in Ephesians 5, we saw this drawn out because this is what Christ does. Christ does this for his bride. Even where a husband falls short, Jesus does it perfectly. He cherishes. He nourishes. He lays down his life for. It is Jesus who is the great and true husband to his bride. And a husband will give an account to God for how he leads or fails to lead in a way that causes you to flourish and grow as a daughter of God or to wither up and shrivel in your womanhood. But regardless of how well or how lacking a husband is in his leadership, your relationship to Christ as your Lord carries with it a calling to display your submission to Christ in relationship to your husband. This goes into the very essence of God's design for manhood and womanhood. Christ-honoring submission chooses to submit to an imperfect husband, but not to participate in sin or to suffer or hide physical or emotional abuse. Submission is not participating in sin. Submission is not keeping quiet when you're being abused. Submission is not those things. My friend in India goes into churches and he'll do marriage seminars He'll speak into uh, issues related to husbands and wives, manhood and womanhood, marriage and family. And as he spoke in one church in particular, the pastor of that church demanded that he be able to be the one to bring this text. Wives, submit to your husbands. And since he was the pastor, my friend was like, okay. And so 
He walked through, got to that place, handed over. And as that pastor got up, he was just hammering. Submit. Women, you must submit, 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 submit. I'm man. And it was only afterwards that my friend learned why that pastor wanted to be the one to hammer home that text. And it was because, and everybody knew, which was fascinating, that he was abusive at home and that he would abuse his wife and, and his, in his mind, forcing her into submission in a very ungodly, sinful way. And that is not godly leadership or godly submission because that wife kept quiet and would not expose it honestly and openly before others. As a church leadership, we want every husband and wife, every man and woman here to know, every child, that our theology, our reading of Scripture, which clearly teaches that domestic abuse in any form is wrong. It's never appropriate. It's never okay. So please come talk to us if you ever feel unsafe. Or if the sins of Colossians 3, which we've walked through, if these sins are common and rooted in your home, we could walk through them, then please talk to us. Because we as elders pray We know that it is our job to keep watch over your soul and to fight for your hearts and your lives, your marriage and your families. We also know statistically that this is a reality that impacts every church around the world. This is a reality, even here. Christ-honoring submission boldly receives leadership from and submits to an imperfect husband. So this is a restatement of the previous point, but I want it to just stand here alone. Because a godly husband, a godly leader in Christ is worth submitting to. And ladies, your husbands will come alive in their manhood and in their leadership of you in your home when they know that you support them, when they know that you believe in them, when you receive their loving leadership, and when you use your gifts to strengthen that leadership, they will come alive. God, your godly submission cries out, I love and respect you, which ties back into Ephesians 5. And yet it cries out without even the use of words. And it reaches deep into a man's soul. I know quite a few men who bear the wounds of being torn down by their wives. They stopped trying to lead long ago because it felt impossible, which is not okay. We'll look at husbands in a minute. But these wives tore down and criticized their husbands and then resented what they had helped to create. And of course, those marriages don't stand the test of time, nor the empty nest. Sadly, we have watched that play out more times than I would like. This is why your submission should be Christ-honoring and display His glory in your home. There's a helpful article, Desiring God, put out called Six Things That Submission Is Not. I do recommend it. I think it's worth thinking about as we delve into a little bit more of of 
of what submission is and what it isn't. Just if you just Google six things submission is not, I think that's helpful. And so with the scripture, we say simply, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Second, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So the incomparable Christ displayed in Christ-honoring love. The second way God displays his beauty and glory in Christian marriage is through a husband who loves, can you guess? Christ. It's Christ first for the same reasons as earlier. That authentic love toward a wife is only possible when it is first in relationship to the real and to the genuine. Without love for Christ, there is no submission to Christ. There is no obedience to Christ. And so these words, love your wives and don't be harsh with them, will just remain words on a page. Good intention without life-shaping reality. You might love them, but it will not be love as defined by Christ, as lived out by Christ. It will not be love that deepens and protects your intimacy in marriage. It will be a self-seeking love, one that says you exist for me. Or even worse, as Christian men, we might simply say, well, I do love and I'm not harsh. And it ends there when the truth is we're living the opposite. Husbands must love. The very core of New Testament love is the humbling and self-sacrificing act of giving oneself up for the good of another. That's the call. It's to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow the one who denied himself and bore the cross that we deserve. That's the call of the gospel on us. It is the call of Ephesians 5 to lay down our lives for our bride. And this is why Philippians 2 is such a great marriage text, as Peter referred to it, because it is Christ who is over all, emptying himself and taking on the form of a servant in the lowest of the low and ultimately giving his life for his precious bride and for the glory of his father. Laura Beth and I recently got to speak to a couple in the midst of a marriage and Out of all the texts, they said, just read scripture and speak into us. Lord, what do I speak? And God just brought me right to the heart of John 13. And that's Jesus taking up the towel, washing the feet of his disciples. This is your calling. This is how you lead in the kingdom of God. This is how you love your wife. Of course, this is bigger than romantic love, though that's a part of it. It's a pursuit of knowing and understanding her, honoring her, listening to her, even when you feel like you don't have the emotional capacity to take in another word. Providing for her spiritually and physically, protecting her, watching for enemies, of your soul and her soul, worshiping with her, not worshiping her. 
and leading her to Christ. And the greatest gift that you can give your wife is Jesus. This is true leadership in the home. One author says that a man's leadership in the home means a bent toward initiative under which women thrive. A bent toward initiative under which women thrive. And this is a key evaluator. Is your wife thriving? As one of my mentors once said, would your wife describe herself as a well-tended garden or as a weedy stone riddled garden. And as you grow older and your body grows weaker, that doesn't mean that your body feels great and you feel strong and wonderful. No, but you know in your heart that you are pursued and that you are loved and that you are sacrificed for and that you are the treasure of Christ, your groom, imaged through this imperfect groom. Versus being neglected, being left to yourself. And if I'm honest, over the years, that's been my greatest temptation. When you're dealing with so much pressure in the world or in your job or with people, I just want to come home and I want everything to be fine. I just need Laura Beth to be good all the time. And yet that isn't reality. It isn't uh, waiting for the, the giant explosion of fire that says, oh no, I've dealt with many broken marriages that step back and ask the question, how did we get here? We have no idea. And you start unraveling the pieces and you start looking back and you start realizing there were little foxes spoiling the vineyard all along. Unhealthy patterns that, that came into the home, little idols that distracted and rotated our time, our, our energy that, that took us away from God's primary calling for us. And how desperately we need husbands to make the effort to break away and to just evaluate. Where are we in this gift called marriage? And to ask those hard questions. How can I love you better? How can I lead you better? Instead of just pointing, which is so easy to do. Seasons can be difficult. They are difficult. But if your wife doesn't feel tended to, then you need to reevaluate your home, your practices, your life. When a husband loves his wife well, he is imaging the love of Christ to her, and she will blossom as she submits to him and to you. And I promise you, it's worth the work because Christ will blossom her in ways that you cannot. And wives, Christ will blossom your husband in ways that you cannot as you live this before one another. Remember that part of loving her is stirring the gifts that God has put in her, helping her to grow in them and to exercise them in the home and in service to the body of Christ or wherever she works, wherever she is. On the flip side, it's insecurity in us, husbands, where we feel pushed back in any area, any initiative to lead. If it is met with resistance, it is so easy to go passive. It is so easy to just quit. It is so easy 
to forsake the calling to truly love our wives as Christ calls us. A husband's call is to lead through sacrificial love and pursuing his wife, not giving up and praying for her and leading her to the one who is the lover of her soul. I want you to notice what Paul contrasts here because as he says to love your wives, he says then, and do not be harsh with them. Ooh, that one. I'm so glad that it's in the text. Because harshness is in all of us men. It's easy to spot in our parenting. It's a lot harder at times to spot in our marriages. It can be as simple as acting in an unloving way or responding. Right? It's incompatible with love. These go against each other. Love your wife, don't be harsh. Right? You can't do both. You're not loving her in harshness. carries with it the idea of sharp, sharpness, or, or bitter. It's regularly attributed to a tyrannical overlord, right? The picture is that of God's people in slavery in Egypt, where Pharaoh puts taskmasters over them who makes their lives bitter, who forces submission, who deal harshly with God's people. But God would not allow that to continue forever. God would break in and set them free from that type of bondage. And Uganda marriages more often mirror slavery in Egypt than a well-tended garden. The man demanding submission. The wife's role is doormat. That's why I use that word, because it's common in that context. And she's responsible for all things labor-intensive. When will you get your slave? When will you get your cook? When will you get your? That is often the way that wives are viewed. But a husband is not a lord over his wife. He is a steward who has been entrusted with a prize so precious that Jesus laid his life down to set her free from sin, death, and Satan, the tyrannical rule of Satan, not to put her in the hands of a new taskmaster. But harshness is so easy because we often feel like it's right. That's why it's often a knee-jerk response. It's selfishly motivated. It's not loving. It's when we think it's deserved. I told you. Why did you do that? It's often a response that's not honoring to the other. Talking down, making them feel like a child. Scolding. Harshness is often a response that's demanding. And that has no place in marriage for Christ's people imaging Christ to one another. It also carries with it the idea of a heart that has become frustrated. Can anybody relate? Do you ever get frustrated? Do you ever get embittered against your wife? And then that gets expressed towards her. Often, harshness is rooted in resentment. It's those little things that just build up. Oh, well, I just won't, won't deal with that. Oh, we won't talk about that. And then something comes and whew, out it comes. Harshness 
produces a bitter response, both in the husband and in the wife. But love produces a loving response, both in the husband and in the wife. I love this quote by the early church father, John Chrysostom, Bishop of Constantinople in the late, late 300s. Okay, so in the, in the late 300s, he wrote a commentary on Colossians. And this is what he said. He said, from being loved, the wife too becomes loving. And from her being submissive, the husband learns to yield. That was very perceptive. The very act of loving another above oneself carries a form of submission to Christ and the pursuit of the good of another. So how does this play out practically? All right, this is really easy. It's easy to see if we say, okay, what are we having for lunch? Well, I want Mexican. Well, I want Thai food. All right, last time we had Mexican, so we get Thai food. Ultimately, is it about me or is it about you? Do I choose to serve me or do I choose to die for you, right? Unless she's like, you know, what do you want? Oh, Thai food, because it's always Thai food for me. That's easy. But, but what about the hard things, the big things? Um, imagine this. Picture this. Husband, he, his car keeps breaking down, right? He's put $500, $1,000, 1500 another 1000 and he's going, ah. I used the word banange that, earlier. That's a Ugandan catch word, which means, ah, like, what is it, banange? Um, the, He's saying, ah, we're, we're putting too much in this car. It's time to get a new car. Uh, he tells to his wife. He's lay, and, you know, men are really smart. They know to lay out all the reasons why they want to get what they want. So he tells her, you know, uh, we paid this and this and this and this. Who knows what's going to break next? You know, we're just losing more money. So I've come to the conclusion that we need a new car. Right? Can you picture this? And the wife is going, ah but the kids need clothing and new shoes and there's sports fees and we've got this and we've got that, all right? He's up here and she's down here in the practical reality. And he's going, ah, he hears her, but he's optimistic <laughs> and he thinks it'll work, okay? We'll be fine, all right? It, it can work. She feels heard, hopefully. He hasn't just dismissed her. Um, and so she chooses to come under and support it. In fact, she even joins him in looking for a new car, maybe even one that will save them a little bit of money for household needs. So she joins in the search. As they walk through the process, he begins to realize, man, these cars are really, really expensive, and boy, we just don't have the savings. This is really going to make it impossible to spend anything for the next six months. How will we buy shoes and clothes and things our kids need. And so even while she submitted and came under his leadership, he realizes she's right. Now is not the time. And so he lays it down. He submits to her concerns, but he leads in the decision. You see that? See how those work together? Now, if only it was that easy all the time, right? Okay, because I, I, I didn't bring in the harsh pieces and the I don't feel heard and, you know, those, those realities of life. Because that is the truth. Much in the big things, we see this, but really it's in the little daily responses and choices that we make. As I started to 
to really saturate in this thing of harshness. A couple of times, caught myself responding and going, oh, babe, that was harsh. <laughs> That's not been a part of my language. I just haven't used harsh, right? You know, again, because typically we feel like it's a justified response. You start to realize, actually, no, it's not. And there's something beautiful. It's, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? I forgive you. And that's where the gospel's on display. Because we're not talking about perfect marriages. We're not talking about perfect scenarios. Whatever marriage in this room or outside of this room that you're like, man, they've got a great marriage. I'm telling you, there's no perfect marriage. They've got their baggage. They've got their battles. They've got their struggles. And it is warfare for everyone because there is an enemy who fights against your intimacy and unity. He wants to divide you. He wants to keep you divided. He wants you to not experience intimacy with each other or with Christ. And then what will your children be drawn into? Not intimacy with either. And the beauty of this lived out in Christ is that you are fighting to protect a oneness that honors and cherishes and that displays the beauty and the value of Christ. And you experience him together. And then your children are invited into something, into what is genuine and authentic. And it's not perfect, but it's seeing the I'm sorry for. Will you forgive me for? I have failed here. And we have to rise up by going down and going low and asking those hard questions and letting Christ rearrange how we live our lives, how we go through our day, how we communicate. And in it, he will root out our pride and our stubborn meanness, meanness and meanness. He will root out the desire to rise up and rule and together, he will display the beauty of the Savior who is the head of his bride and his body. Do you believe that Christ has gifted you with your spouse for his purposes to be worked out in both of your lives? Do you believe that? I remember in the early days just comparing it. Did I marry the wrong person? Comparing, comparing, comparing repent. Freedom comes in laying down and saying, I fully receive you. You are the one Christ has entrusted into my heart and my life for me to point to him and experience him through. There's no mistake. No matter where you are in your marriage, no matter how hopeless you might feel, there is hope. And no matter how broken you have experienced marriage because there are those that come out of brokenness deep deep brokenness because this thing of marriage is fragile it is easy to crush one another in an instant and that's where the grace of Christ meets us and that's where the hope of what is greater marriage redeems the broken things and calls us to walk and to live as sons and daughters of God living the truth and hope of this gospel together. Jesus came and gave his life for an imperfect bride.
that through his shed blood and his victory over sin and death and Satan, that she would be set free and that she would be made beautiful through his great work and the gift of his spirit. That grace of God is for you and me today. No matter where you are, drink it in and lavish it on one another. We've walked with many marriages over the years from many different countries, India, England, Uganda, Canada, America. It doesn't matter. Issues are all the same. They all come back to the same root place, this root thing called sin. We are a people desperately in need of a Savior. And yet God has given us what we need in Him. Where we resist the truth of the gospel, let me say this very clearly, where we resist the truths of the gospel, we will resist in our marriages. What do I mean by that? If a wife believes or a woman believes that she's not worth being loved, then how can she embrace the love of Christ for her? And if she can't embrace the love of Christ for her, how will she embrace the sacrificial and grace and love of a husband seeking to truly love her? She will resist both. We walked with one couple in Uganda where the husband, he was not harsh. He wasn't a harsh man. Of course, we all battle, right? The same root sins, the same struggles. But the issue wasn't, the wife would not say, he's harsh with me. But the truth is, is that she was harsh with herself. Do you catch that? She's harsh with herself. Ah, I did it again. Ah, I'm such a failure. Ah, I'm no good. Ah, ah, like just that struggle of harsh, 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 harsh self-criticism. You know it, ladies. You know those things you hear in your heads, those lies that the enemy wants to hold you in bondage to. And so that any inkling of disappointment for any little thing on the side of the husband, she would beat herself up and she lived in bondage and fear of disappointing her husband. She could not be led by him because any little correction, anything just pointing to Christ was like, whoa, harsh criticism. And she lived in slavery. And we got to watch Christ break into that and begin to transform it. Other women battle a tainted view even of the word submission, right? Right away, it's like, oh, I hate that word. Can we just get a different word? Um, <laughs> And yet it's beautiful. And it's what we walk in before Christ together. Others will simply just submit to keep the peace, right? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I love submission. It's great. It's great. We don't have any problems. No, we're good. We're always good. Uh, but it's a false peace. You're not bringing the life-giving help that you're called to. To come alongside and to gird up. Because, of course, that might cause conflict, right? If I disagree. <laughs> and all of these, husband and wife, failing to be met by the grace of Christ in their own heart and through the other person, fail to live faith and repentance together. And if all you get walking out of here today, outside of the clear command of Scripture, is 
faith and repentance together, then I will be a happy man. Because the gift of repentance is the gift of hope for every marriage. The gift of faith and repentance is transforming as we submit to Christ and as we live out this call together. I implore you today, cast yourself on the grace of Christ who loves you and gave himself for you. Receive from him that you can flow and receive from your husband or wife that which is a gift from his hand and that you would know his love through knowing the other person's. And take time to sit and ask those questions. How can I love you better? What are ways you feel harshness from me? Wives, ask, how can I submit to and support you better? What are ways you feel disrespected by me? Live repentance together. We give maintenance to the most precious things. We, we, we maintain our cars. We maintain our homes. We maintain things. And things are either being improved or they're deteriorating. And how much more for marriage? It's worth the maintenance. Fight for it. Break away and talk about the hard things. And finally, sit with other couples who you trust and who you can walk with together. One of my great privileges for Laura Beth and I was having a couple in Uganda that about once a month would come over to their house. We left our kids at home. They made us coffee. Any good meeting has a cup of coffee. And they would just ask the questions, how are you guys? I love that question. Sometimes I didn't love that question, right? How are you how is marriage? How are your children? How are things? All right? And then just that, that back and forth, discussing, teasing out, them speaking in, receiving, praying together because it is a spiritual battle. One of the lies, whether, again, American or Ugandan, is that we keep these things just us. And that also will maintain a type of bondage for yourselves. We're made to walk together. And to point one another to Christ. While homes around the world display the wedding day, the pictures, God delights to display his glory and the glory of Christ through the messy, fragile, sin-battled marriages found in day-to-day life. And that's yours and mine. Right now, your marriage is a display for the glory of Christ and the mystery of marriage to the world and to each other. Non-marrieds, you display Christ's glory through submitting your desires to Christ and living faithfully before him and his people, the incomparable Christ revealed in both, revealed in all. Let's spur one another to Christ. Let's pray.